The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's been a long time since I've given a talk here, maybe eight or ten years. But um, it's very nice to be here and see all of you. Today, I'm going to tell you a few stories. The first one uh, is uh, not exactly a story, but a quote from uh, Master Umman, uh, Yunmen in Chinese, who was one of the great uh, Zen masters of the Tang Dynasty in China. He said, throughout the whole universe, between heaven and earth, uh, there is one treasure. But it's hidden in the mountain forms. Mountain forms mean you. This one treasure that is uh, universally uh, present is also present within you and within me. But uh, it's hard to find. Somehow it's covered. That's why uh, it's hidden. Somehow it's hidden. Uh, then he says, in, in the morning, of course this is in the Tang Dynasty, in the mo- monks had uh, paper lanterns which they used uh, to guide them into the meditation hall. Uh, in the morning you bring the lantern into the meditation hall and when you leave you bring the triple gate on top of the, on top of the lantern. I have to explain that one. It's a little obscure, maybe. Uh, my understanding of the triple gate is in China uh, the mon- monasteries all had gates, large gates. <clears throat> and sometimes there were a, it was a triple gate so that there was the main gate and two side gates. Uh, and the tip, triple gate was representative of nirvana. And the side gates were representative of wisdom and compassion. So in the, in the morning you bring your light into the zendo, into the meditation hall. And then when you leave, you bring wisdom, compassion, and nirvana into the world. Master Uman also said, uh, each, one has, each one of you has your own light. But uh, when you go to look for it, it's dark and dim. That can be interpreted in many ways. You bring your own light into the, into the meditation hall. And then you transform light into nirvana, wisdom and compassion. So I'm going to tell you a little story. Once upon a time, (laughs) this is an Aesop's fable. Once upon a time, there was an old man, a farmer, and he had a field, a big field, big farm. And he had three sons. And he said, boys, 
I'm going now, and the field is yours. And on, but I want to tell you that, I never told you this before, but on this field there's a buried treasure. So that's all I can tell you. Goodbye. <laughs> so the boys got out there and they started digging. And they dug the whole thing up. And no treasure. They said, well, let's try again. So they went out and they started again. Digging, 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 day in, day out. And then at the end, they looked at each other, shook their heads and said, no treasure. We'll try one more time. So the third time, they tried again. Digging, 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 digging. Unearthing, turning over the soil. And they looked at each other and shook their heads. But that spring, they had the greatest crop <laughs> that they'd ever seen. Tremendous, beautiful vegetables and, you know, everything. Uh, and then they looked at each other and they said, you think this is what the old man was talking about? <laughs> it's common in uh, Buddhism to seek enlightenment. But the more you seek enlightenment, the further away it goes. My teacher, Suzuki Roshi, uh, always said, don't think about enlightenment. Don't worry about enlightenment. Enlightenment is easy. Enlightenment is not a problem to have, to have enlightenment. Don't worry about it. Just do the work. Just do the practice without seeking anything, without looking for anything. Just simply do the practice, which is, that's the hardest thing because we always want something. Why do we do something? To have a result. Of course. That's normal. We want something. When we do something, we want, uh, we want a return for our effort. The problem is that what brings us to, to practice is enlightenment. We think that we start from, in, from delusion working toward enlightenment. But actually, we start from enlightenment and just simply do the work, which is called refining your life. That which brings us to practice is our enlightened mind. What attracted me to practice actually was not enlightenment, but simply a good teacher. But I actually was uh, attracted to to practice before a good teacher, but when I found one, uh, I knew he was a good teacher. After listening to his, some of his talks, and what was, was uh, the most wonderful thing, the, re- the way I knew, the reason I knew that he was a good teacher was because he said, when you sit zazen, when you do meditation, you will do meditation. That's all. He promised nothing. No promise. If you do this, you will do this. That's the whole secret of practice. 
we turn over our desire mind to what's called way-seeking mind. Shakyamuni says, said, the second noble truth, the big problem is desire. The problem of suffering is due to desire. That's the second noble truth. First noble truth, as you know, is human beings are subject to suffering in many ways. The second truth is the reason, desire, or we say delusion. Delusive desires, desire that leads to suffering, karmic um, activity. Karma, of course, means, just means action, a volitional action. That's what karma is. And then the result is called fala, fallout. (laughs) The result of our actions. So when we turn over our our karmic activity, the desire for, for karmic satisfaction to fundamental satisfaction called practice, it's called way-seeking mind. We call it way-seeking mind. The mind that seeks the way. It's, It's not like we get rid of desire, but desire goes in the right direction. We turn desire to a beneficial action instead of action that creates suffering. So, uh, when we turn our, if, if we have the desire for enlightenment, that's okay. In, in Buddhism, we're supposed to have the desire for enlightenment. But it's not something that you can catch or even go after. We practice for the sake of practice. When we practice for the sake of practice, enlightenment is there. But we don't recognize it. So two things. One thing is called enlightenment and the other is called realization. Enlightenment can be there without realization. We don't know what we actually have. We don't, we don't necessarily mine our treasure. So karmic activity covers our treasure. There's another little story I'll tell you about a little dog. A cute little dog. He's in the marketplace. And he comes up to the butcher shop. This is an outdoor marketplace. And uh, the butcher's talking to a lady about the price of um, ribs. And (laughs) the dog sees the steak on the table. So grabs the steak, pulls it off the table, and trots out of the marketplace. And as he's, uh, he, he gets out of the market, goes down the street, gets out a little bit into the countryside, and goes over a little bridge, a very shallow bridge over a creek. 
and he stops in the middle to catch his breath. And the steak is hanging down his, from his mouth. And he looks over the side, and the water is very still. And he sees a dog with a steak in his mouth. <laughs> and he said, that steak is bigger than mine. <laughs> and he opens his mouth <laughs> to get the steak. And of course, you know what happened. <laughs> you lose it. When you want too much, you lose it. So this is a good example of desire, exorbitant desire, karmic consequences right away. Uh, karmic consequences, you know, <laughs> are either immediate, the consequence of our action is either immediate or somewhere down the line, or way down the line. And something happens that was way down the line, we say, I didn't deserve that. Why'd that happen? We forget. We don't know the causes. It's really hard to know the causes of our karmic consequences. Buddha says, we think, he said, we don't know what he said, but we think... <laughs> It's attributed to Buddha <laughs> that um, the most difficult thing to understand is karma, its causes and its consequences, and how everything happened. So we have to be very careful, as you know, uh, uh, what we do, what our actions are, and what they lead to, because actions will always lead somewhere. Actions always lead somewhere. Everything goes someplace. It's interesting that people who don't believe in karmic consequences or in consequences, all this coal dust is being pumped into the air, uh, all the exhaust is being pumped into the air. People say, well, there's no consequences to that. Well, anyway, the leaders of our country sometimes people who want to be the leaders of my country say that. So I'm sure you're familiar with the circle of transmigration. The Tibetans have a wonderful wheel which has the six worlds, a depiction of the six worlds. The world, the heavenly realm, the hell realm, the fighting demon realm, the human realm, the animal realm, and the hungry ghost realm. And in the middle, the whole thing turns on uh, the pig, the chicken, and the snake, which stand for greed, hate, and delusion. So the whole karmic Saha world, as it's called, the world of undulation, revolves around greed, hate, and delusion as the hub. And uh, so Buddha is always talking about how you get off this wheel. In one day, we can transmigrate through six worlds. One moment, we're in the heavenly realm. And then one, and then something happens, and we're in the hell realm. 
something's taken away from us and we're in the hell realm. And then uh, we see something, some kind of sensual delight and we're in the, in the animal realm. And then uh, something happens to us and we get re- in a rage and we're in the fighting demon realm. We go through these realms constantly. This is called transmigration. It's not like after we die, something happens like that. It's right in this world is where it's all happening. This is the realm of either heaven or hell, or hell. Heaven and hell happen in the same place. There's a wonderful story. (laughs) The difference between heaven and hell. In hell, there's a long table. And all these people are sitting around the long table. And there's a great feast on the table. Everything you can imagine that you love to eat. And everyone is issued a pair of chopsticks. But the chopsticks are this long. And they, they, even though you may be able to get something off the table, you can't get it into your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Heaven is the same place. The same people, the same feast, the same chopsticks. Uh, but in, in, in heaven, people take the, some of the morsel off the table and feed it to the person across the table. There's another story. Uh, the... Um, uh, contest between the sun and the wind. Uh, one day, uh, the sun and the wind, you know, were talking to each other. And the wind said, look down there. They're in their celestial realm up here. And look, down, look at that uh, shepherd down there on that nice green lawn. Um, uh, you know, he's got that coat on. Let's see who can make the, uh, the shepherd take his coat off. So the son, the son said, okay, let's try. Let's see. So he said, you go first. So the wind blows and blows and blows. And the more he blows, the more the uh, shepherd has to work to keep his coat on. And he's blowing, blowing, and the shepherd is just going like this. And he can't take his, he, would, he couldn't blow his coat off. So the wind says, now it's your turn. Okay. The sun says, okay. So the sun shines down on the shepherd, and the shepherd's saying, Phew, really getting warm around here. And he takes off his coat. Which is an example, of course, of gentle persuasion as opposed to force. You can't force something. You can't force... We try to force people to do things. We try to force the earth. We try to force uh, growth, you know, to let everything unfold in its own time with nurture uh, is far better than force. 
But unfortunately, in our world, we always turn to force. And anger always gets the upper hand. It's really hard to not fall into greed, hate, and delusion. Anger is, of course, hate. Uh, anger is a part of hate. Ill will or forcing, trying to force something. Uh, and the, the six worlds turn on this force. They turn on greed, wanting too much, and delusion. Delusion is also ignorance. Master Banke, uh, who was active in the 17th century in Japan, uh, was, is considered one of the great Japanese Zen teachers. He always used to talk about, he only had one thing that he ever talked about, actually, and it was called the non-born and the non-dying. The unborn Buddha mind. I always talking about the unborn Buddha mind. Buddha nature. And which is the same thing as Master Uman was talking about. Um, the one treasure and uh, everyone having their own light is called the unborn Buddha mind. Unborn Buddha mind is the underlying reality of our lives. And he would say, everyone is born with this unborn Buddha mind. Everyone appears with, this, with their unborn Buddha mind, which is their true nature, our true nature. But when we become angry, we trade in our unborn Buddha mind for anger mind. Or when we become greedy, we trade in our unborn Buddha mind for greedy mind. Or when we act in an ignorant and deluded way, we trade our unborn Buddha mind for delusive mind. And we do that all the time. That's called creating bad karma. <laughs> creating bad karma. Suzuki Roshi, my teacher, uh, gave a talk once about the movie and the screen, that our life is like a movie. The movie needs a blank screen in order for it to be a movie. And the movie is like the scenery of our life. And the scenery of our life is being played out on the blank screen. Without the blank screen, there's no movie. Without emptiness, there's no form. So, there's a, um, uh, a projector, a, a, a mo the movie, the projector, and the light, and the screen. And uh, when we turn that on, and the light projects onto the screen, the blank screen, the movie appears. We're not interested in the blank screen, we're only interested in the movie. That's our problem, is that we're only interested in the movie. And so our life is constant momentum. And it just keeps going along and along. Did you ever get into a position where you were 
people, a lot of people were talking together and there was this wonderful kind of conversation and suddenly, for some reason, the conversation stops and there's this embarrassing silence. Why is it embarrassing? Nobody has anything to, to say <laughs> or to add. It's just, actually, it's this wonderful silence, but we call it embarrassing. <laughs> so this embarrassing silence is really our fundamental nature. And we're all embarrassed by it because we keep running. And that's our mode. We don't know anything else. So uh, at some point, we've tried sitting still and letting go of the momentum of our life. Take a break. Sometimes it's called meditation. And then we touch our, our fundamental self. My teacher always called it resuming our true nature. When we sit, we resume our true nature, free of the karmic activity, or the activity that's continually uh, going on. So, Panke is very refreshing because that's all he ever talks about. He says, when uh, you're doing something and the dog barks outside, uh, the dog is heard. You hear the dog bark, but you didn't try to do that. It's just that it was heard. Something is seen, something is heard. When we sit in zazen or meditation, our eyes are open, and eyes see. Ears are open, ears hear. Feeling feels, tongue tastes, the nose smells. But there's nobody that does that. It's simply our unborn Buddha mind that is hearing, seeing, tasting, smelling, touching. but we attribute it all to I. So when we let go of I, we need I. It's important to have an I. But we should not be caught by believing in it too much. We need to have an ego in order to operate in the world. But we have to be able to turn over our ego to our true self. I call it cooperation. If you say there is no there is no self, that's a, a kind of Buddhist term, no self. Well, yes and no. If you say there is a self, well, yes and no. What is it? Yes or no? That's a great koan for us. It's neither yes nor no. And it's both yes and no. There's a self. If we didn't have a self, we wouldn't be talking about no self. There's a self, but the self, it's a not self. So we have to be very careful. So way-seeking mind is like turning yourself over to Buddha. My old teacher used to say, we're half half ordinary person 
and half Buddha. Half and half. We're half good and we're half bad. Everybody. You can't get out of it. So, who's leading, you or Buddha? When we turn ourselves over to practice, over to, then we say, okay, Buddha, you lead. But sometimes we say, wait a minute, Buddha, I want to lead. <laughs> and then you get the edge. And then you realize, uh-oh. And then we say, Buddha, will you please lead? Okay. And then pretty soon, we let Buddha lead. We turn ourselves over to Buddha. Uh, and that's what we're doing in our practice. We're turning ourselves over to Buddha. We are Buddha. We're not turning ourselves over to some other Buddha. We're turning over to the treasure within ourselves. This is how we mine the treasure. Nonsense. Uh, Uman's treasure. That we, we are Buddha. We have Buddha within ourselves. Otherwise, why would we even talk about it? It's not something out there. It's within ourselves is the treasure. And when we turn ourselves over to Buddha, so to speak, then we let Buddha lead. And the, uh, the treasure comes out and the light appears. It's there. So that's why we turn our activity, our ordinary self, over to Buddha. But it's not easy. It's not easy. So as long as we have way-seeking mind and nurture our way-seeking mind, even though we fall off, it's still practice. Practice is not something it's not just coming to sit at the, center, at the center and then going home. And it's one of the activities. At some point, your practice has to be the center of your life. I often think of our uh, body and mind as a kind of mandala. It's a copy of the universe. Microcosm of the universe. The solar plexus is right here. The solar, the sun. That's why it's called the solar plexus. It's the sun, sunspot. This is where the the sun is. This is the seat of intuition. And then we have the satellites called the brain, <laughs> and the feet, and the arms, and the body. And these satellites all revolve around the sun, around the solar plexus, around our basic nature. And when we release that, when uh, and harmonize body and mind with uh, the the rest of the all of the um, extensions, then we're in tune. We're in tune with ourselves, and we're in tune with the universe. We don't practice for ourselves. We practice, and we don't practice for the sake of others. It's easy to say, you know, we say, well, we, we're, we're good, we don't practice for ourselves, but we're, and we're good because we practice for others. That's kind of egotistical. 
We just practice for the sake of practice. We do the thing for the sake of the thing, and then something happens. We don't know what the far-reaching nature of our activity is. So when we have true faith in our practice, in our meditation, so-called, meditation is, something, is not something we just do in, the, in this room. Our practice is involved with everything we do. Every activity, every action should be meditation practice. Not just sitting with your legs crossed. So we carry that into every activity of our life. And so we create a Buddha field. So it's called a Buddha field. Each one of us has a Buddha field. Some is very small and some are rather large. Nevertheless, this is how we influence the world. This is how we bring light into the world. It's through the harmonizing, first harmonizing ourselves, harmonizing all the aspects of ourselves, and then creating harmony in all of our activity within our, our own world. Each one of us lives within our own world, which covers the whole world which also includes dissonance. Harmony also has to include dissonance. It's not just like we're nice, nicely harmonized because we're always dealing with dissonance. And dissonance is part of music. It gives uh, energy to harmony. We have three minutes if anybody has a question. Uh, one of the attributes that I dearly love about Gill's practice here is what, in my opinion, I interpret to be the emphasis on curiosity. Hmm. Do you say a word about how to use curiosity? It killed the cat. <laughs> <laughs> Well, curiosity is like investigation. You know, investigation is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It, it, it's kind of opening ourselves, actually, to what's around us. Opening ourselves to what's around us and, and allowing ourselves to deeply understand. I used to talk about the seven factors of enlightenment as exactly what we do in, in meditation. And investigation, you know, c- takes various forms. But in meditation, uh, it means to examine what is going on as you sit. But I think of it as when we sit, you know, we have a, a form, formal way of sitting, and so we investigate if, over and over if, we're, if our posture is good, if our form is good, if our breathing is uh, deep, and so forth. So, but there are many ways of investigation. But I think basically it means to have an open mind. Just have a, an open mind. 
which means an unassuming mind. I don't know is the highest. (laughs) Don't know is the highest form of investigation because the mind is simply open to everything without any, uh, without assuming anything. If you can cultivate or fall into or whatever, an unassuming mind that knows nothing, you will have accomplished a great feat of meditation. (laughs) Well, that's it.